0: Global debt, or borrowing by governments, businesses and people, is rising to dangerous levels, says the International Monetary Fund IMF. Also the World Bank has warned of a looming debt crisis. What does this risk mean on a practical level, and how can we change course before it's too late? Let's find out. You're listening to Beyond Business with Wärtsilä a series that goes above the realms of strategy and operations and seeks to find solutions to our global problems. Marcelo Esteval, Global Director, Macroeconomics, Trade and Investment at the World Bank, joins us from Washington to talk about what can be done to prepare and soften the blow if not completely avoid it. Marcelo, thank you for joining us. Thanks for inviting me. Last year, global debt crossed the $300 trillion mark, the highest one-year rise in debt since the World War II. What does this signal and why should we be worried about it?
1: I think, well, first of all, um, that basically signaled that uh, all of us as society are much more willing not just to issue debt, but to buy that. By the way, the, the increase in debt has been not just on sovereign debt, has been also for private sector debt. But we have been focusing quite a bit on the ability of, in particular, developing economies to pay the debt that they issue, say, since 10 years ago. But I would say that the uh, underlying, the fertile ground for this to happen has been a world with very low interest rates. You know, uh, you have the major central banks in the world uh, who are uh, enacting a monetary policy uh, focused on very low rates to deal with the the consequences of the great financial crisis of 2008 and 2009. And that created an incentive for people to borrow and for people to lend. They are thinking, you know, I can borrow now. Interest rates are so low. How can it be bad if I borrow to, I don't know, build an airport or or a bridge? So let's take advantage of these low interest rates right now
0: there've been debt crises over the decades so you know what's the unique feature of this one around what what makes it so different
1: i think what makes it so different is that first the the holders of debt are more plentiful than in the past that landscape is much more diverse now with uh, different types of creditors with different type of incentives another characteristic that i think is is somewhat peculiar is that the very large emerging market countries haven't had a debt crisis now. I mean, we don't have a case of a contagion like you saw, for instance, when uh, Mexico stopped paying its debt in 1982. There was a contagion from that action to other Latin American countries and then other countries in the world, which was quite serious. I see the crisis right now being more of a common shock. We had COVID. We had um, we had this war that is going on, the invasion of Ukraine, and that came in a situation that countries were already borrowing too much before COVID hit. So I see a bunch of countries in trouble, but not one huge country in, mm. in trouble, and and also I don't see a particular creditor saying, wow, if this happened, I'll have a big hole in my balance sheet like it was in the 80s.
0: So when you say that it is not contagious, at least not yet contagious, uh, what kind of uh, common denominators would there be between the regions and countries that are to be hit hardest by it?
1: I think the common denominator are countries that um, are relatively poor but were growing significantly. And they they basically overborrow in a group of 65 developing economies. What you see is that sustained primary deficits were the single largest driver of public debt in those countries. Countries are simply spending beyond their means. So before COVID, uh, the median public debt increase attributable to primary deficits, so you're spending more than you're collecting, amounted to a whopping 14% of GDP. So if you look at sub Saharan Africa, it was eighteen percent. If you look at the at the the developing countries, so these are the poorer countries in, in the world. There was an overall increase in thatness in the last ten years, and again, I attribute that for investors interested in in searching for yields, like we we say. And policymakers taking advantage of the time and borrowing when the borrowing was cheap. Mm. But that was a bit short-sighted because you do have to pay what you borrow at a certain point, even if its interest rates were low. Yeah.
0: No doubt we are facing tough times ahead. So how can a global debt crisis potentially impact our everyday lives? We'll find out after this short break. Stay tuned. Recently, IMF and the World Bank have also significantly lowered their global growth forecasts. The president of the World Bank has stated that for many countries, recession will be hard to avoid. So how will slower or even negative growth impact global debt, which is ballooning as it is?
1: Everybody in the world is facing higher inflation, for instance. Part of the shock is an inflationary shock, in particular because of the war and the impact that it caused on supply chains and uh, the price of foodstuff and, and, and fuel. And through reduced growth, you have reduced trade. If you are more open economy, you are going to, to suffer somewhat. But I would say that for countries that are more developed, that's a, a survivable shock. And if there is severe uh, constraints on imports of gas and oil, we know that Europe, in particular Germany, is quite dependent on, on Russian gas. And oil. So I do get somewhat concerned about some of these uh, richer countries, but still, it does feel to me that these are societies that have ways to manage that. Now, I'm much more concerned about relatively poor countries that also um, are quite uh, dependent on, say, food imports. So um, over the next year, the tab for imports of wheat, rice, and maize in these countries is expected to rise by the equivalent of more than 1% of GDP. That was the calculation in July. Now, maybe a bit less, but still, it is concerning uh, because that's more than twice the size of the 2021 2022 increase.
0: What does it mean in a sort of very you know, practical terms to the individuals on the very grassroots? there's so much less than for the critical infrastructure, such as the healthcare, education, and uh, building of the society.
1: It is a big development problem. Debt and uh, the lack of financing for key development policies are a big deal for development. That's why we are particularly concerned about the debt situation around the world. I'm quite concerned about uh, countries that are high risk of debt distress, or already in it, and are very sensitive to this food price. And here I have in mind Afghanistan, Eritrea, Mauritania, Somalia, Sudan, Tajikistan, and Yemen. These are countries that are quite sensitive to what's happening with food price, and they have a debt issue. So those countries need special attention, and our teams are working hard with the authorities to help them, you know, survive this. Particular moment. There are also some emerging markets that are also quite vulnerable. And for instance, the crisis in, in Lebanon is a country that has had uh, uh, an economic crisis for the last, I don't know, three years. For a while, we are very concerned that they simply did not have access to, say, wheat. Seventy percent of the wheat came from Ukraine, for instance. So there are countries like that that is they are very concerning for countries that are not paying the, the Jews. And uh, here in particular, there are three countries that are part of the G20 common framework for, for, for resolving that problems. That's Chad, Ethiopia, and Zambia. There was just uh, some breakthrough in the case of Zambia because it's the best example of a country that would benefit from the common framework because it has some private sector debt, has some official debt, has some multilateral debt. So we sit in the credit committee and then we see how we can help the country. They just got a program of adjustment approved by the IMF board, which is important. The IMF is the first stop. There's an issue of countries that are in trouble to participate in such negotiated uh, um, set of uh, agreements and solutions for their problems.
0: The World Bank is already working on a crisis response of uh, 170 billion US dollars to finance countries that are dealing with uh, multiple crises. Could you tell us a little bit more about this program?
1: The 170 billion dollars refers to the period from April 2022 to June 2023. And by June of this year, June 2022, we had already committed 50 billion dollars in different types of of programs so they, that initial response, for instance, included uh, increased support to the Ukraine, of course, because there's a war right there. So, and countries hosting refugees from Ukraine, and the wider developing world, to address crisis impacts on the poor and vulnerable. So the idea is that this will build on the results achieved under the COVID-19 crisis response, to the extent that our concessional arm. IDA, so the uh, International Development Association uh, arm of the World Bank, which has grants. It's not just loans with very low interest rates. We ramp up so much that that, what we call the IDA round, was shrunk from three to two years. The advantage of that is that the pressure on commodity prices becomes less intense. So our programs, we are really focused on these topics. We have a big engagement in the climate area. The World Bank is quite involved in trying to understand how um, developing countries can have strong development programs that are consistent with uh, uh, a robust climate response to climate uh, shocks. So it is a comprehensive, but at the same time, customized World Bank engagement. Uh, that extend across a very wide uh, client spectrum, including low-income countries, middle-income countries, fragile and conflict-affected states, and small states.
0: This is a crisis where we are all in together. So naturally, global collaboration, cooperation is critical. How would you characterize this uh, collaborative approach?
1: It's quite remarkable. I mean, the only reason the old bank can Ramp up resources. Uh, we are owned by the shareholders, so this support where we are, for us to be actively helping uh, developing countries is clear. Now the world is more fractioned. You know, you have a large country inv- invading another country in a region that hasn't seen that since Second World War. So. And some countries supporting the invading country, others denouncing. So it is a more fractional, fractioned world, which makes me worried about it. But from the point of view of people working on development and trying to find resources and thinking about policies to help countries, I do see a lot of uh, good cooperation, certainly across international organizations. So it is a very active, collaborative environment when it comes to international organizations and and institutions that have uh, among their mandate helping uh, developing countries.
0: That's reassuring to hear that, uh, you know, when this collaboration is needed for at that point of time, the entities come together. But I take that uh, that has not always been the case and uh, aid has come often too late. How can that approach be changed for the future?
1: I think having these overarching geopolitical issues resolved would help tremendously to begin with, but there is no question that there is tension I mean it would be it would be wrong for me to ignore that uh there are questions about how globalized the world is continue going to be will there be different spheres of uh, influence that will uh, damage the degree of collaboration when crisis hits. so I'm very concerned about that so I think the the first step is to get the act together and begin collaborating more and not invading each other so that's that's quite important um the second thing is is to make sure that the mechanisms that we have to help countries in crisis are modern and have been uh, rethought. Uh, to address the new uh, international uh, situation so for instance right now we have the common framework for for dealing with uh, debt problems in developing countries now there's some criticism that the common framework has been too slow to deal with the crisis i'll take some issue with that i mean it's true that we all w- would like it would much faster but that crisis are messy now we all have to work to make the process faster we need to make sure the countries feel comfortable applying for it if they if they see the need. Um, countries themselves need to realize that, uh, you know, sometimes there's a lot of reluctance because they do not want to lose market access to capital uh, if they apply for some restructuring of their debt. So, But I think that they need a sense of comfort and they are paying attention to what's happening to the country They are being discussed now by the Common Framework to see what's going to be the outcome.
0: But cooperation alone cannot help us beat this vicious cycle. We need to do a whole lot more. That's coming up after this short break. Earlier in the interview, you mentioned that a big portion of the sovereign debt is today held by private creditors. Of course, they have a completely different model of working. So how does one incentivize them? To take action in a way to alleviate the crisis,
1: as we are trying to coordinate debt treatment, we are always, you know, um, wondering: is this particular debt treatment fair across creditors? So, bringing the private sector in is is a key issue. Sometimes it's hard; depends on the countries, um, on how this debt was contracted. But in other cases, maybe say in Zambia or other cases. The international community has a way to bring those, uh, the private sector. In, in particular, very often, once it, 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 the international community comes to an agreement on a type of debt treatment, there are ways that international organizations can continue lending to the country, even if the country have arrears to the private sector. So, in that case, you know, if, if there was already a treatment and, say, the World Bank or the MF are lending to a particular country and the country is not paying pain to the to the private sector uh, creditor there is an incentive for the private sector creditor to come to the table to get at least something some situations what we have now is good now we can always do better so there are issues on how uh, the the official sector does that restructuring is that uh, uh, consistent or at least uh, w- with the way that the private sector does debt restructuring, there is a, a discussion about that. that's very technical.
0: You have been a strong advocate of more transparency in government debt. Why is that one of the pillars of that new system that uh, should be built?
1: The issue here is that um, countries have uh, many obstacles, some to be more forthcoming about their debt. So, for instance, secrecy clauses. So some information may indeed need to be protected, such as proprietary financial calculations or formulas, but there's no reason to hide the deal as a whole. And I think more often than not, confidentiality clauses are the result of maybe more unsavory motivations, either political considerations, there are upcoming elections, a reluctance to review the true state of public finances, or simply corruption, to be very blunt here. The policymakers need to create a better way for borrowers and lenders alike. First, they need to refrain from using such confidentiality clauses. I mean, secrecy may be very tempting in the short run, but over the long run, transparency can bolster a borrower's reputation, which in turn will improve investor confidence and lower borrowing costs. So it's very myopic to think as secrecy, as as something that could benefit a uh, government or a country, and, and by the way, should market conditions deteriorate and credit relief become necessary, like we are discussing now, these countries in the common framework and all that, transparency also facilitates effective debt assessments by avoiding hidden and surprise debt, you know, in, in fostering efficient restructuring, explicitly stating contracts, the right of borrowers to share detailed information about public debt transactions with international organizations like the World Bank, who are responsible to produce the data needed for people to evaluate the situation of the debt in those countries. Also, having that transparency requirements codified into national law, not just into norms, is a way of, of dealing with that. and and also ensure that the debt disclosure is sufficiently detailed to allow lenders, analysts, and the public to scrutinize government actions. And here I'm not talking about dumping a bunch of 100-page contracts with with small, you know, with a fine uh, print. You need to to communicate well. Um, Now, confidentiality clauses are not solely responsible for hidden debt. I mean, in some cases, uh, hidden debt... uh, Happens because of lack of state capacity to adequately track debt obligations, and we help countries
0: in solving that. With the current, you know, global debt crisis really looming over our heads, do you think that the governments and central banks right now today are acting speedily and responsibly enough to averting this? And if so, would you have any you know good examples to share? Yeah,
1: I think. uh, we do not have a worse crisis because policymakers in many countries, many big countries, acted decisively. Now, I could talk here about uh, what the U.S. government has done. You know, you think in terms of both the fees. Actually, if, if anything, the fiscal spending of the U.S. could be argued has been even too large. In some sense, it was too active. Uh, and then some of the inflation pressure that we see right now is because of this big fiscal impulse. But you see immediately the Federal Reserve reacting to it and, and uh, raising rates and markets have already priced significant tighter financial conditions as the Federal Reserve tries to manage uh, aggregate demand in the US. But if you move to, to emerging market countries, that is also, you have good examples of very active and uh, the right policies. And I think Brazil is a case in point here. What you've seen is, if you look at, say, what the Brazilian Central Bank has done, it began raising rates way before most banks in the world and did that rightly. It was read quite clear that the inflation shock in the country, and in the world, by the way, was, was something more serious. They needed more active uh, response. The Brazilian Central Bank raised rates quite rapidly, and because of that, uh, you've seen actually capital flowing into Brazil and was flowing out for many countries. That gave a great sense of uh, good economic management and, uh, and the confidence of investors. Of course, there was some capital flowing out as well because it's affecting everybody. You know, once the U.S. raised rates, capital flows to the U.S. from everywhere, but much less from Brazil. And, and also, if you look at the fiscal response to the crisis in Brazil, was actually quite good. The issue now for all countries in the world is how to adjust now, including on the fiscal side, because you do this fiscal policy when it's needed, but then you need to
0: rebuild your capacity to fight crisis. So there is hope that we can still avoid the worst of it all. In your mind, are there perhaps even some opportunities that can come out of all this adversity and crisis, perhaps a silver lining?
1: There's always a silver lining. First of all, yes, we can, uh, avert a major recession in the world. That's not our forecast. We are not for, we have forecast a slowdown in growth in the world. We are not forecasting a world recession. And I think our forecast is good. So we have weaker growth or, you know, a bit, but, but still, uh, we are not projecting global negative, uh, GDP, uh, growth, let's say. And a uh, silver lining, I see a lot, uh, quite a bit of silver lining in, in the climate area. First of all, we've seen how economic activity is related to greenhouse gas emissions. We've seen a decline, a significant decline in greenhouse emissions during the COVID, the peak of COVID as people did not take their cars to go to work. They work from home and all that. So I think we learned quite a bit on how to have a lower uh, carbon uh, footprint. I'm just speculating here, but I can see like some silver lining in that regard with price of fuel going up to the roof. Of course, the incentive to invest in alternative source of energy, which are less polluting and are less, uh, contribute much less to greenhouse gas emissions is also quite big now. So that's a good thing as well. So I think the silver lining on the climate agenda is clear.
0: That's a great way to see it. Thank you so much, Marcelo, for this discussion. I wish you all the best of success for your important work.
1: Now, and thanks so much for the interest. Thanks so much for all the support.
0: Thank you, listeners. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast and share it. I'm Atte Palomäki, and today we went beyond business. You've been listening to Beyond Business with Vatsila. This podcast is produced by Spoon Finland and recorded on location in Helsinki.